So good to see you all out this morning. Merry Christmas. I want to pose a question to you this morning. What do you suppose is the most staggering claim of the Christian faith? What is the hardest to get your mind around? What is perhaps the greatest stumbling block for unbelievers? What is the one that if most carefully considered stretches us and causes us to see with a sense of wonder and amazement God? Is it the atonement? Is it the idea that by the death of one, the sins of all might be forgiven? Or is it the resurrection? Is it the belief that a man crucified, verified as dead, in a tomb for three days, comes back to life fully alive, is seen and touched? Or is it the virgin birth? That one certainly defies everything that we know about science and our origins. Or would you say it's those miracles of Christ, things like feeding thousands with a meal meant for one, walking on water, healing the lame, causing the blind to see, even raising the dead. Is that what is most challenging to you in the Christian faith? J.I. Packer in his classic Knowing God writes this, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second Adam, determining human destiny, the second representative head of our race, and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. This morning, I want to stretch your thinking, and I want to cause you to look on with wonder what God has done for us in Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote of Timothy, wrote to Timothy of this same wonder and amazement. First Timothy chapter three, verse 16. He said, "God indeed, we confess, is the mystery of great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness." Here's the mystery. He was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. What a great mystery. Again, Packer writes, the mystery of the incarnation is unfathomable. We cannot explain it. We can only formulate it. That's what we do today. We're going to formulate it and celebrate it and thank God for his goodness in it towards us, his people. Let's pray. Father, make us ready to receive your word, both in how we hear and see and understand, and in what we do with this message of hope, of joy, of peace, of life, this good news. Father, I pray that we would be doers, not hearers only, for your glory, for the good of all those around us for whom you sent Jesus, your Son, the Savior of the world. Father, we love you and we thank you and we celebrate your goodness towards us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. A simple synopsis, a simple statement without detail, without emotion of the birth of Jesus. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Two absolutely essential non-negotiable statements of our faith are contained in that brief synopsis of the birth of Christ. The first is this, that baby born at Bethlehem was God. This was no ordinary man. This was no simple human. Far more than a teacher or a rabbi or a miracle worker or a revolutionary, God was born that day in Bethlehem. And the second truth is just as important and co-equal with the first, that baby born at Bethlehem that day was God made man. God made man. Not simply God masquerading as man or appearing to be a man, but God in the flesh as man. The Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes the event like this. The question, how did Christ, being the Son of God, being the one who emanates from God, begotten of the Father for all eternity, how does Christ, being the Son of God, become man? The answer, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Yet without sin. If you were with us last night, you heard us recite the Nicene Creed. Formulated in the year 325, the Nicene Creed was to address a fissure in the early church. There was a word that was introduced that was very controversial in the fourth century called homosousius. Homosousius, the idea that in one could be two, fully God and fully man, not partially God, not partially man, not a commingling of the two, but a completeness of both. The Athanasian Creed, named after Athanasius, the primary spokesperson that drove the Nicene Creed, begins with these words. Whosoever wishes to be saved. Now, the next few words, if you're one that likes to Google and follow and read the rest, it's a rather long creed. He uses the word Catholic, but not in our modern sense of Roman Catholic or denominational Catholicism, but Catholic in small c, meaning universal. Whoever wishes to be saved, anyone, anywhere, must affirm these things. And he lists these statements about Jesus. Three critical statements, all summarized in this one, perfect God and perfect man. Again, so essential to the faith that the early church agreed without believing these to be true, without affirming the incarnation of Christ is the birth of God and the birth of God made man, there is no Christianity. The Athanasian Creed affirms these three statements about Christ. One, that he is true God. Jesus of Nazareth is the same substance of the Father, equal to him in deity. He's not a lesser God. When he came to this earth, was born as a baby, he didn't compromise himself. He didn't become something less than he was before. In the incarnation, Christ did not shed his godliness or his godhood like a snake would shed its skin, but only veiled it. He veiled his glory in humanity, revealing it only as he saw fit. 
Number two, Christ is the true man. Jesus isn't almost like us. He didn't simply come close to experiencing humanity like us. He had a real body. He had a real soul. His conception was extraordinary, certainly born of a virgin, but his growing up was ordinary. He developed in the same way that any of us would. In fact, we know relatively little of his life from his birth up to the age 12 and then nothing again until the age of 30. We know from the scriptures that he matured as we do. He was subject to pain as we are, pleasure, hunger, thirst, fatigue, disappointment, suffering. And most of all, he subjected himself to the great enemy of us, death. He thought, he reasoned, he felt as a man. In all things, Hebrews 2.17 says, he made himself like us, his brothers. And the third truth is this. Though he is true God and true man, he is one person with both natures. Both natures. This is a mysterious truth, but Jesus is one Christ with both a human nature and a divine nature, and they don't bleed together. They don't compromise one another. They don't minimize or change one another. In fact, we would say that Jesus simply added to his divinity humanity while continuing to be God. Now, why is this important? Why is it important that we embrace the truth of the incarnation is central to our faith, not skipping over it for things that we understand better, like crucifixion or even resurrection. Well, there are inheritors of this Arian heresy still today, those who denied that Jesus is truly God. That was the great battle of, of the time. And those inheritors today would include billions of people who identify as Muslim, who deny that God could have a son co-equal to him, or some that identify as Christian today, like Mormon or Jehovah Witness or Unitarian. In fact, it exists widely even in what we would call liberal modernity, modern sorts of Christianity that values Christ, honors Christ, learns from Christ, even tries to emulate Christ, but denies that he is in fact God, something less than who he truly is. Consider some of these troubling results from just this year's survey from Ligonier and Lifeway called the State of Theology. The state of theology defines itself like this. Every two years, we take the theological temperature of the United States to find out what people on the street and in congregations really believe. So this is fresh. This is what they found. I'm going to give you two questions they ask and the answers that they receive. Statement number two, and these are true or false statements. Statement number two, there is one true God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. True or false? These are the answers. 11% said, not sure. 5% somewhat disagree, 14% disagree. So you've got nearly a third who don't understand or don't believe in the most essential teaching of the Trinity, that God exists in three persons. Now, as bad as those results are, stick with me, because they're about to get worse. This is statement number six in the state of theology. Statement six, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Did you catch that? Jesus is the first and greatest being being created by God. True or false? 13% said, we're not sure. 15% somewhat agree. 40% agreed. That's more than two-thirds of Americans who don't understand a doctrine so essential to the church in its early stages, they said, without believing it, you can't even be a Christian. That Jesus was not begun at Bethlehem. He became Jesus at Bethlehem when he was named that, but he has always been one with the Father and the Spirit. But wait, it gets still worse. Because those numbers I gave you span belief across 
church-going people and non-church-going people, people who consider themselves evangelical like us, who go to churches like ours, and people who don't. So if you narrow the survey findings down to people who do identify as followers of Christ, evangelical, meaning they believe the Bible, presumably, they have faith in Jesus personally, and they attend church somewhat regularly, people, again, like us, here's what the survey found. When asked that same question, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 5% said we're not sure. 3% said somewhat agree. 70% agreed. And so if you're wondering why I'm telling you this on Christmas Day, we need to be reminded of the foundational truths that make us Christian. We need to be reminded of why the incarnation of God is so amazing that God would visit with us. In John's gospel, Scripture says that Jesus dwells with us. He came and tabernacled with us. Now, if you were an Old Testament saint, that would have a lot of weight with you because you would remember scenes of tabernacle and then temple where God, by his presence, dwelt with man, but in a limited sense, for he could not be approached. He was not among his people. He was distant from his people. He was cut off from his people because of their sin. And now he sends Jesus. God in the flesh comes to tabernacle with us, among us. A God that, by seeing him, we're not destroyed. We're not in fear of him as Isaiah was in his vision of God. Woe is me. But we can dine with him. We can talk with him. We can see him and touch him. We can be with him. Why is the incarnation of Christ non-negotiable, essential to our saving faith? I'm going to give you 14 reasons. No, I'm kidding. But let me say this. Let me pause for this commercial break. I was told last night, if you were here for Christmas Eve, I was told after the service that I put four minutes in the bank for today. If any of you were looking at your clocks, you know that that service was 56 minutes long. I intend to get my four minutes back. So let me give you, let me give you four reasons why this is so critical today that we embrace and we celebrate and we find our hope in the fact that God dwells with us in the person of Christ. The first reason is for revelation. For revelation. If Jesus had not come, our understanding of God, our vision of God, our knowledge of God would always be limited. John Calvin wrote that all the imagery before Christ would be to us like a pencil sketch of the true God. But when Jesus comes, now he has revealed for us the Father. The Father who is distant from us because of us. He has not moved, but we have moved from him because of sin. And we could not, would not know him apart from Christ. You heard me read last night, Luke chapter 2, verse 32. As Simeon is holding the baby Jesus in his arms, and he's resting now in peace and with great hope, ready to meet God. I can die a happy man now. This is what he said of Jesus. He is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for Israel. He's the fulfillment of all the history of Israel, from the creation through Adam, the covenant through Abraham, the promise given to David and his seed for a throne forever and ever. He is now the fulfillment of that, the glory of God's promise and work through Israel. But he's a revelation of light for all the rest of the world that we will see God. John chapter 1, verse 8, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared him. Even Moses was not able to look on God, the great friend of God in the Old Testament. But in Christ, we see him. John 1.14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Jesus answered Philip in John chapter 14. Philip asked him, Lord, show us the Father, 
and it's enough for us. That makes sense to us. It's the same plea that every person since creation, since Adam and his sin, denied the rest of us fellowship with the Father. Adam and Eve, fellowship with the Father. They were able to walk with him as in the cool of the day with a friend. But since that sin denied us that relationship with God, mankind has been crying out, we want to see God. Show us the Father. Philip says, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Have I been with you so long? He didn't say, have I been with you so long? You still don't know him. He said, me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, Jesus said. And no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows, no nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son reveals him. And Jesus was praying in John chapter 17 for all of his followers of that age and every age to come. This prayer includes us. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. For revelation, Jesus came in the flesh. Without that, we would not be able to see the Father. For redemption, Jesus came in the flesh. You can't separate the atonement of Christ on the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection from the birth of Christ. That's one of the things that we typically fall short of in our celebrations of Christ. You'll find lots of celebrations of Christmas, both secular and Christian, all over our culture and society. Uh, this morning I've received uh, Christmas messages from different countries. People, saved and unsaved, will be posting things today and taking pictures today and celebrating things today and opening presents today and having meals today. Many of them will embrace something about the birth of Jesus, a generic sense of goodwill or peace, uh, a short-lived sense that we ought to do better, live better, treat each other better. But how many will fully embrace the whole story Per Jesus' own words, he came to this world to save sinners. And he would not, could not save sinners simply by being a good example for them to follow. Once a sinner, that cannot be undone by doing good. In fact, as a sinner, all of our good works are only filthy rags. He could not do it simply by conferring it on us through miracles that we see and or wonder and wonder and amazement over. Wow, look, that's amazing. That didn't save anybody. He had to pay the penalty for our sin, for redemption. There are two aspects in our redemption. First is this, he removes the curse of sin against us. Paul explained this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What does that mean? The law that God gives to all people reveals that all people have a common condition, sinfulness. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul said Christ redeemed us from the curse of that law, which is death, having become a curse for us. How? Through death. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. He hung on that tree, that cross of wood, to remove the curse from us. He also restored to us the inheritance that God intended for us. It's the inheritance that Adam, the first man, forfeited in the garden. God's intent was to make Adam his son to give Adam everything, to bless Adam with all of creation and put him in dominion over it. And all those who came after him, every seed of Adam, 
But Adam exchanged the great inheritance of being the child of God for selfishness and sin, thinking that he might somehow be like God himself. But God, in his mercy towards us, even though we didn't deserve it, since Jesus to restore that inheritance to us. On the basis of the work of God, he does this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul the Apostle describes this restoration of a lost inheritance. But now it's been given back to us in Christ. The term that Paul uses in Galatians is adoption. Adoption. Though we were strangers and aliens, God brought us back into his family. He adopted us eternally, not conditionally, as his sons and daughters, and as such, we are co-heirs with Christ. And that is redemption. The third reason is for our rescue. It's for our rescue. The incarnation was essentially an invasion. It's a dark world that existed at the time. Darkness was upon this world, and God brought light through the person of Christ. Those living in darkness, the scripture says, have seen a great light. This kingdom of darkness, ruled over by a dark king, whom Scripture describes as Satan, because of our sin, because of our willingness to disregard and disobey and deny God his rightful place, we by default fall into that kingdom of darkness, that kingdom that only leads to subjugation and death. But God comes in the person of Christ, and he says the kingdom of God is here. So repent, believe the gospel. He rescues us. Colossians 1.13 he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He could not do that had he not come in the flesh personally. That rescue involves many parts. He has to face down the enemy. He has to fight him on his battlefield of temptation and never succumb. He has to endure the worst he can dish out on a day that Satan celebrates and Jesus dies and then he destroys every notion of evil, every plot of the enemy, and is raised on the third day and says, I am he. And all who believe in me will live and never die. And ask them, as he asks us, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And he comes for our restoration. He comes to restore things. Again, looking back to the Garden of Eden, to the perfections that God designed and intended. You remember the Genesis story? There's a recurring phrase with every day of creation. You remember what it is. And God saw what he had done. He saw what he had made, and it was good. And it was good. To say that it was good, clearly, explicitly, not just implicitly, means there was no evil in it. There was nothing wrong about it. There was no sickness, no sorrow, no death, no pain. God made it good. But it was sin that made it broken. But God... In his mercy, since Christ. Not simply so that individuals get to go to heaven one day, though that's certainly part of it, but to make everything sad unsad, to make everything broken unbroken, to make everything dead alive, to make everything tainted pure again, to make everything dark light. It's the restoration of all things. Acts chapter 3, verse 21. Repent, therefore. Repent. This is our response to what God has done. Peter preached this message on the steps of the temple. Repent, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Turn from the way that you've been living. Turn from your ignorance of God. Turn from your defiance of God's laws. 
Turn from your self-rule and self-will and surrender to God that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He's going to put it all back right. Revelation chapter 21 describes the rightness of God's restoration. Listen to what he does for us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That first heaven and first earth, this world that we live in now, affected in so many ways by our sin, the sins of people all around us, and the sins of all the people that have ever come before us. Why is the world like it is? Why does evil seem to prevail? Why is there so much pain and suffering and death and injustice and all the other things that we weep about? Because we live in a broken world, but it will not always be such. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What we have a foreshadowing of in the incarnation what John wrote about in John chapter 1, that he dwells with us, we now will enjoy forever. And we'll see God face to face. God himself will be with them as their God. We will be his people. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new, and he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is our hope. This is our confidence. When we look at this world through the lens of our earthly limitations, we might not see it, but when we look at the future through the lens of, of faith, through the words of Scripture, we have hope. He'll do this for us. And that brings me to the final reason. Jesus came in the flesh, God-born, God born and made man to rule, to rule. Jesus' coming was the coming of a king. There's a reason why the hymns that we sing at Christmas time evoke this imagery. There's a reason why three wise men came to worship him. Uh, there, there's a reason why Herod sought to kill him, because they know that the prophecies promised a king, a king who would sit on the throne of David. But his kingdom would be different than David's or Solomon's or every other heir. His kingdom and rule would never end. Jesus came to rule. I'm going to give you a handful of scriptures, so absorb these. Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord will do this. So when you're starting your Bible reading plan in 2023, and I know you're going to, and you're reading that first part of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, that has so, so many names, some of which you can't pronounce too easily. Don't fly through that. Don't skip through that. Read it slowly and absorb it. It's the message of fulfillment of God's promise. Look what I've done. Look at these generations. And you'll find these names like David's 
and ultimately you'll find the name of Jesus. Daniel prophesied the same, chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's King Jesus. Now, admittedly, our Christmas imagery doesn't evoke much idea of ruling and reigning. It's a baby in a manger. But the rest of scriptural imagery does emphatically. For we will see him again. And when we see him again, he doesn't come in weakness. He doesn't come as a suffering servant. He doesn't come to be made an object of our wrath, our derision. He comes as a king riding on a white horse. The king of kings, in fact, and lord of lords. John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. If Jesus had been a short-lived revolutionary, an earthly king trying to make improvements on a culture that certainly needed them in so many ways, if he simply wanted to rescue the Jews of the first century from Roman oppression, he could have stirred his people up. He could have been an insurrectionist. After the death of Jesus and his resurrection and ascension, other generations, other leaders of the Jews tried this very thing. And in 70 AD, they were destroyed, they were wrecked, and the temple itself was brought to nothing, brought to rubble. It was never Jesus' intent to do that. He, his work is much bigger, much larger. And so today when we think of Jesus as simply addressing some of the cultural issues that we're about, that we should be at peace with one another, or we should try harder to be good or do good, yes, those are part and parcel of it, but that's very small in comparison to the work that Jesus came to do. He didn't come to make our society or our culture more tolerable or your conditions more livable. Jesus came to be king who rules over everything and one day will restore it all to its rightful way as God intended. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20. He worked in Christ, God, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What happened to Jesus after he was crucified and resurrected and ascended to the Father? He took the place that Isaiah saw that he would take, that Daniel saw in that night vision he would take. God seats him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. When does that happen? When does Jesus sit at the right hand, far above all earthly power, rule, and dominion? When? Is that future tense? No, that's now. That's now. There's not a square inch of this world that he does not rule over. There's not an atom, A-T-O-M, in this universe that he is not sovereign over. He sits at the right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Revelation 19. What do we see of Jesus in the end? We see him as king. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And by the name, the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Do you remember that? John chapter 1. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus. That's what it means to be the Son of God, by the way, the one that emanates from the Father, the one that comes from, from the Father, not Son of God like we have sons and daughters. He is the very Word of God by which all of creation exists, by which the will of God takes place, by which the promises of God are fulfilled, dipped in blood, 
And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is why the incarnation of Christ, the birth of God in the flesh, the birth of God in Bethlehem, the birth of God made man matters. To reveal the Father to us and to all the world. To reveal, I mean, I'm sorry, to reveal the Father to us, to redeem us from our sin if we will have faith and receive it to rescue us from darkness and the dark kingdom in which we once were captive, to restore all things as God intends, and to rule over it forever and ever. This is what Christmas is about. This is what Emmanuel, God, with us means. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I pray that today all of us in this room will bow our knees submit our wills, yield our hearts to the kingship of Jesus. Because the truth is this, the victory is for those who bow now. The promises are for those who bow now. The inheritance, the adoption, the glory, the heaven, that is for those who now, in seeing God in the face of Jesus, say, yes, you are my king and I will follow you forever. But one day, every knee will bow. One day, it will be undeniable that Jesus is the Word made flesh, that He is the King above all kings, the Lord above all lords, that everything is under His foot. Everyone will acknowledge, but that future acknowledgement is not the acknowledgement of salvation. It's the acknowledgement of surrender that leads to judgment. Ours is the acknowledgement and the surrender that leads to life, forgiveness of our sins, adoption into the family of the Father, The presence of His Spirit in us to guide us and lead us and empower us and comfort us. And the promise of everlasting hope. So bow now. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. So that you, by His poverty, might become rich. The message of Christmas is that Jesus, for all who will trust Him, become truly rich. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your love for us displayed in action, in history, in time and place. In Bethlehem, in Nazareth, in Jerusalem, on Calvary, and one day before every eye, for every eye will see him. Father, we thank you for this great salvation. We affirm, as the saints have for two millennia, that God was born that day in the flesh for our sake and we are so grateful we are rich because of Christ heirs with Jesus co-heirs together children of our Heavenly Father Father we thank you for this we thank you that you have made it so we love you and we worship you in Jesus name Amen